fun here. There we go. I needed a little help with my voice here this morning. We had our Catalyst 1 and 2 retreat um, Friday night and all day Saturday. And so we had this place jammed with a little over 200 people here, and it, it was a fantastic time. Um, uh, God did some really incredible things in so many people's lives, and you'll probably see some videos of some of the testimonies of things God did in people's lives. And so my voice is just a, a little bit froggy and crackly from all of that, but um, it's amazing. I, 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 the building is clean. Uh, you could not imagine this at about 9 o'clock last night when it felt a little bit like a mosh pit around here, and there was stuff everywhere. Hopefully it doesn't smell too bad, but um, we had a great time. I encourage you, if you haven't gone through Catalyst yet, to be a part of that. That is such, it's such a life-changing thing. It's our kind of internal discipleship program, trying to help you move from where you are to where God wants you to be. And it is just amazing how God does that, when, how he shows up when we just give him a little bit of time and we give him a little bit of our attention, and he does these incredible things in our life. And we do this retreat for Catalyst 1 and 2, and we do it in Catalyst 3. We end with a retreat and kind of this commencement um, service as well. And so that's just a little bit of heads up. It'll start again. Uh, what is this month? October? Start, start in January, I think. End of January is where we'll start it up again. All right, get your Bibles out, if you would. Go to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, which is in your Old Testament part of your Bible, after the book of Psalms. We are starting a new series around here called Living in Exile. And we're going to be going through the book of Daniel over the next, probably next couple months as we head into Christmas. And, and we're going to be really diving into this because I think it's a really important message in the season in which we live. So Daniel chapter 1, look at this in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspinance, the chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Um, I better not say what I was going to say. He was to teach them the language. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, for all you single ladies, this could be your wish list that you put on your online profile. It's the problem when you don't have enough sleep. The filter just is not there. Anyway, all right. He was to teach in the language and literature of Babylon. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, let me give you the back story here, because this is really important for you to understand what's happening, because we're going to be following this story all through the book of Daniel. Because in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, invaded Israel and besieged Jerusalem. 
And Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah, he changed his alliances to the king of Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, in an attempt to try to avoid the destruction of Jerusalem. And part of that agreement meant that Jehoiakim, he had to hand over or pay tribute from the treasuries of Jerusalem and give those to Babylon, to the king. And he had to hand over some of the royal family and some of the nobility. And so included in that list of hostages that were taken out of Jerusalem and Israel and Judah were these people, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so I want you to try to put yourself in that position here this morning. I want you to try to imagine what was going on here. Because imagine yourself as a young Jewish boy or a young Jewish girl, around the ages of 13 to 15 years old, and all of a sudden, you're ripped out of your upbringing, you're taken from the comforts of your family and your culture, and you're shipped off to this foreign, hostile country of Babylon. Now, Babylon was known for its paganism. It was known for its idolatry, it was known for its pride, it was known for its opulent wealth and materialism, it was known for its sexual immorality, it was known for the brutality of its kings, it was known for its history of violence. I think for our perspective, if you can kind of imagine being shifted off to the country of Iran, maybe that would have a, a little bit of a closer connection to what you might think Babylon was, just a completely different culture than what you experience here in the United, United States. And so you're shipped off to this foreign hostile country and you're forced then to enter into this three-year cultural retraining, reforming, and brainwashing program. For three years, you're inserted into this program that's designed to brainwash you and completely uproot and take everything out that's your family, your culture, your spiritual upbringing. It's to completely change you. And, and, and to cap all that off, they change your name. This name that reflected your birth and your family and your spiritual heritage, they wipe that name completely off and you no longer can be called by that name. Instead, you're given a different name. And this name reflects one of the Babylonian gods. This is what happened to Daniel and this is the land to which he was exiled. Lee Beach in his book, The Church in Exile, he describes being exiled this way. He says, exile is the experience of knowing that one is an alien, and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. This sense of exile is experienced by anyone who feels alienated, cast adrift, or marginalized by their inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. Simply put, Edward Said writes that exile is the perilous territory of not belonging. Now, I want you to let that kind of settle inside of you, because even though you and I, we haven't been shipped off to some foreign and hostile country, the reality is, is the country in which we now live has radically changed. Within just a very short generations, our country has changed radically. I want you to think about it this way, because let's say it's a Sunday morning before church, and you go to your favorite coffee shop, and you're, you order your, your caramel macchiato with an extra shot of espresso, especially on a morning like this, and, and uh, you make sure it has skim milk because you're trying to keep your figure, you know. So you order, you order your drink, and there's not a lot of long lines. So the barista engages you in a conversation. And one of the questions in the conversation is, well, what's your plans for today? Now, I'm not sure how that 
catches you, but I don't know if that puts tension in your neck when you hear that question on a Sunday morning. Because if you answer that question as, well, I, well I'm going to go to the beach today, or I'm going to go boating with my, my buddies today, or I'm going to go get some mimosas with my girlfriends today, or um, I'm going to go do yoga down, down on, um, by, by the lake. If you answer the question that way, great, fantastic, the conversation continues. But if you were to answer the question like this, well, it's Sunday, and I'm going to church. Because every single morning, I gather with other followers of Jesus Christ from the Lake Travis area, and we come together to declare that Jesus is Lord over our city and on, over our world if you answer that question that way, what's the response going to be? Nine out of ten times, there's going to be tension that fills the air, right? It's going to create this tension in the room because now the barista is thinking, oh, you're one of those. You're one of those weird type of people. You're one of those crazies. You're, you're an uneducated bigot. Nine times out of ten, you're going to have people that are going to respond to you that way. And when you think about this, this hasn't always been the case. When you think about just the, our history, there was a day, and I'm sure a lot of you remember this, that the vast majority of stores were closed on Sunday morning because the vast majority of people actually went to church here in the United States on Sunday morning. But in the last 25 to 50 years, there's been a huge shift in the belief system here in the United States. We no longer live in a Christian culture, folks. So, so sociologists describe that we have shifted from a, a Christian culture to a post-Christian society. That's what the American culture is now described as, a post-Christian society. And in the past 50 years, there have been three major cultural shifts that have happened right in front of our eyes. The first cultural shift is from the majority to the minority. From the majority to the minority. For the first time in American history, Protestant Christians are no longer the majority in the United States. For the first time in the entire history of America, Protestant Christians are no longer the majority in the U.S. The fastest growing religious segment in our country are what are called on the ballots the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S. That is the fastest growing religious segment in our culture today. These are the people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious. So they're not Hindu, they're not Buddhist, they're not Muslim, they're not Christian, they're not Catholic, they're not Jewish. But they consider themselves spiritual but not religious. These are the nuns. And this is the fastest growing religious segment of our culture today. This is especially true when you think about our Austin area. Austin is a bastion for nuns. And here in America, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've now become part of the minority. You've become part of the minority. You're becoming an endangered species here in America. This is the country in which we live. It's changing before our eyes. The second cultural shift is from the center to the fringe. From the center to the fringe. 50 years ago, Christians were at the center of cultural influence. Think about it. 50 years ago, Christians were at the center of cultural influence. Most governmental le leaders claimed to be Christians. Most teachers and professors had some sort of Judeo-Christian worldview. Pastors were people who were considered a, a, in high esteem and in terms of their standing in a community. But today, to say that I'm a pastor in our culture that we live in today, people think of me as being nerdy or stupid or weird or odd or just out of date. 
that's how people perceive even what I do as, as a profession. Separation of church and state. What was, what was intended to mean that for the government needed to keep out of the church has turned itself upside down, and the culture wants nothing to do with faith on our public streets. Lee Beach in his book, he says it this way, in the post-Christian revolution, it is fair to say that the church is one of those former power brokers who once enjoyed a place of influence at the cultural table, but has chased away from its place of privilege and is now seeking to find where it belongs amid the ever-changing dynamics of contemporary culture. Isn't that interesting? This is what's happening. The third cultural shift is from the well-respected to the disrespected. From the well-respected to the disrespected. As recently as in the, in the 1990s, Christians overall were thought of in, in a vastly positive attitude just in the, since the 1990s. But now, if you're a Christian, you're thought of as not only weird and odd, but increasingly dangerous. Where we tend to be lumped with ISIS and the abortionist murderers and, and the shootings at the Orlando Gay Bar. We're part of, that, of those crazies. And, and if you're a Christian, we're thought of those who now have the moral low ground. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. This is how culture now sees Christians. If you're a Christian, you've now become the immoral one. If you're a Christian, you've now become the dangerous one. If you're a Christian, you've now become a rebel. This is what has shifted in our culture, and it's changed so fast. It's just changed so fast. It's happened so quickly in just really one generation. Have any of you ever heard of what's called the Overton Window? Maybe through, if you, as you've listened to politics going on, there's a, a term called the Overton Window. And uh, the Overton Window is known as the Window of Discourse. And it's this range of public, that the, um, range of ideas that the public will accept. It's used by media pundits. The term is derived from its originator, Joseph P. Overton, a former vice president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, who in his description of this window claimed that an idea's political viability depends mainly on whether it falls within the window rather than on the politician's individual's preferences. So according to Overton's description, his window includes a range of policies considered politically acceptable in the current climate of public opinion, which a politician can recommend without being considered too extreme to gain or to keep public office. This is what is known as the, as the Overton window. So according to Overton window, the process by which a new idea comes into play goes like this. It goes from the unthinkable, and then from the unthinkable to the radical, from the radical to the acceptable, from the acceptable to the sensible, from the sensible to the popular, and then finally from the popular to policy. Isn't that interesting? How how cultural thinking and cultural thought and ideas go through this process all the way from being completely unthinkable to eventually becoming policy. And if you think about it, there are things that were completely unthinkable a few years ago that are now popular and some are now even policy. We are now living with a new normal. Prayer has now become illegal. Gay marriages are now legal. Caitlyn Jenner is Glamour's woman magazine, woman of the year, um, and he still has male parts. This is the new normal, 
that we live in. This is the culture in which we live in. It's a very different country than what our grandparents lived in, isn't it? It's very different from for some of you that you grew up in, and it's changed before our eyes. And so if you're a Christian, if you really are a follower of Christ, you're becoming more and more an outcast in this country. So the question becomes, how do you live in a culture where at best you're seen, seen as weird and at worst you're seen as dangerous? How do we live in this culture that's changing before our eyes? The interesting thing about it, all of this is that none of this is new. None of it is new. Throughout history, the church and the history of church, Christians have lived in exile. When you look at history, Christians have lived in exile throughout the history. There, Lee Beach continues on in his book. He says, exile in its very essence is living away from home. This is at the heart of Christian faith as we live away from our ultimate eschatological community. Furthermore, exile is the result of understanding ourselves as a distinct people, strangers in the world. This distinction is defined by our relationship with the supreme God and is rooted in God's call for us to live our lives in accord with his, this relationship, often in ways that will come into conflict with the dominant culture. Did you hear what he's saying? That this has always been the case. If you really think about it, to really be a follower of God has always put you on the fringe. And we in America, we've had, we've had a great season where there has been a type of a Christian culture that's kind of allowed you just to kind of be and not feel the resistance of some, some sort of other culture that's pushing against your value system. But when you think about it, this metaphor of exile cuts across the entire Bible story from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham to Daniel to Esther to Nehemiah and Ezra all the way through to Jesus and, and the apostle Peter. Regardless of your ethnicity, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your overall felt experience is that of exile. That really is, when you start thinking about it, it, is, it, we are to be exiles no matter what the culture is around. So look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It says, his letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as what? Are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Verse 17 says, so you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. Chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Look at those words that the Apostle Peter uses. Living as foreigners, foreigners in the land, temporary residents and foreigners. Today, there is so much social and emotional pressure to conform to the tyranny of the majority opinion. It is great, and it's just increasing in our lifetime to act like everyone else, to vote like everyone else, to think like everyone else, to talk like everyone else. Just be like everyone else. That is the pressure that's happening in our culture today. And the Apostle Peter is saying, that you may feel like you don't belong. And the reality is you don't belong. You may feel like you're in the minority. And the reality is you're not in the minority. And you may have to go through suffering as a result of all this. But he said, don't worry. 
Don't fret. Don't get all stressed about this because you're in good company. Your faith will be proven. And the worth of this is greater than you can imagine. That's what he's describing here. And so while you're living in exile, the apostle Peter is saying, worship Jesus, folks. Go all out for him. Love God with all your heart. Love the people who are around you. Follow Jesus' ways. Be a true disciple of Jesus. Don't make explanations or try to justify or hide it. Go completely all out for it. And even though that may not be popular, your faith will fill you with this inexpressible, glorious joy. And this faith will produce in you the salvation of your soul. That's what the Apostle Peter is describing here. See, the reality is many have walked this way of exile before us. Many have. Christians from centuries all over the nation, even today in, in countries outside of the United States, people have walked in exile way before us. And the scriptures are full of people who had to live their life that way and even gave their life in such hostile conditions. And so we have the scriptures to help guide us through this. We have the Holy Spirit to comfort us and to teach us and to counsel us through this. And we have each other in a community of grace to help us, to stand by each other, to lock arms together, stand shoulder to shoulder together, to be a community that ministers to each other in times of need. And so if it's true, if this is true, if this is now our new normal, then the question has to be, how do we live in this cultural moment? Because you can't look to your parents or your grandparents to see what they did. You are now charting completely different territory than your family line has had to do with their Christian faith. So how do we live in this cultural moment? How do we live in exile? Well, first of all, let me just say, I think there's two postures we have to avoid. There's two postures that we have to avoid. The first posture that we have to avoid is separationism. We have to avoid separationism, which I think so many of us, we tend to fall into. This is the turtle posture. This is the bury your head in the sand posture. Hold your breath and just hope that all of this will go away. That tomorrow morning we'll wake up to something different. The world will be different. The United States will be different. We won't have these two candidates who are running for president. It'll just be that different. We'll wake up and it'll just be different. But that's what the this, this separationist mentality is. It's just, I'm just going to bury my head in the sand and hope that it goes away. It's the essence of what the Amish have done, where they just remove themselves from society. But it's also what we can do as Christians. And all that we do is we just get absorbed in our own Christian culture, where our kids only go to Christian schools or they're, or they're only homeschooled, where we only go to Christian coffee shops. We find the Christian coffee shops. We only buy Christian products. We make sure we don't buy any of these other products that maybe have a political stance or, or maybe have some sort of other religious stance. We make sure we only buy Christian products. We don't do trick-or-treating. We don't celebrate Christmas. We, we don't do Easter baskets because after all, all those have pagan origins. We don't go to the movies. We, we don't have TVs. We only vote for one political party thinking that political party is the, the Christian political party. P.S., Everybody knows our political system has changed. And there is no political party that is Christian anymore. I don't know if there ever was, but, but even if, if maybe there was, it's not any longer, folks. We have to wake up. We have to wake up and see our world has changed before us. It's not the same world your parents and your grandparents used to live in. We have to wake up to the reality of, of this culture that we live in. And the problem with separationism, if you try just to separate yourself from all of this, you know what it'll do? It'll make you legalistic and angry. That's what separation does. 
It makes you legalistic, and it makes you angry. And not only that, you do absolutely nothing to impact the world in which we live. There's no impact to your life. The second posture that we have to avoid is syncretism. Syncretism. And that's where we just blend in. We just go with the flow. You just disappear. It's the chameleon posture. This is what happened in Germany. It's what happened in Germany. And Germany is now a church graveyard. The believers, they just blended in. They stopped making a difference. They stopped influence. And Germany now is just a church graveyard. I think this is exactly what's happening in our Austin culture today. Just blend in. Just be one of us. Just go out for another drink. Just go ahead. Just sleep around. Just go out and find yourself. Just be, a, just be a nun. It's okay for you to be spiritual. Just be, just be one of us. Be, be, a, be a nun. Just, just do what everybody else is doing. This is the pressure, I think, more than separationism. It's the syncretism that is pressuring so many people. But here's the thing. Neither of these postures accomplishes anything good. Neither of these postures accomplishes anything good. But I want you to know that God has a different way for us to find when we find ourselves living in exile. God has a different way for us to handle this. Look at this in Jeremiah 29. This is fascinating, I think. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not let them to their dreams that to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, lots of people love Jeremiah 29, 11, and 12. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. So many of those, we think that those are the promises that we grab hold of, and it's kind of our, well, our life verse or a verse that we love in Scripture. The, those are two fantastic verses, but you need to understand this, this word from the Lord was written to those first exiles that were being placed in Babylon. This was God speaking and saying, you need to know this. You've been sent into exile in the Babylon. And just so this was Daniel and his three friends. Each, this was that letter that was written to them from the Lord saying, this is what you need to know. And isn't it interesting what God tells the exiles to do? I just find this really interesting because nowhere in what God says is there any hint of separationism or syncretism in, in this at all. The things he shows, this is what God tells him to do while living in exile. Number one, perpetuate your family. Perpetuate your family. In other words, increase, don't decrease. Have children. Don't be afraid to bring your kids up in this world. Live as a family. Train your kids. In other words, reproduce your culture and your convictions. Increase. Don't decrease. 
Don't withdraw. Don't come out. But actually increase and perpetuate, reproduce your culture and reproduce your conviction. There's a principle called first mention. Has anybody ever heard the principle of first mention? It's It's an amazing thing, especially for those of you who are parents. Because here's the principle. The principle is this, that when your kid hears something for the first time, or you teach your child something for the first time, it's not just information. It's foundational. Because everything now that that kid will hear will be judged by what they first heard. Did you hear me? This is why parents, it's absolutely essential you talk with your kids. You talk with them about sex, you talk with them about drugs, you talk with them about God, because you as parents need to be the one that brings it up first. You need to have that principle of first mention that you're bringing into their lives so that everything that they else hear they will judge based upon what they heard first. And so this is, this is the essence of what God was telling those in the exile. Perpetuate your family. Increase. Don't decrease. Reproduce your culture. Reproduce your convictions. Reproduce your, your relationship with God to your kids and your grandkids. Don't just let it stop with you. Number two, participate in your community. Actually participate in your community. Raise crops, work hard at your job, share with others, live as a part of the fabric of your community. Buy, sell, engage. Don't give up. Don't disconnect. Actually go into your community and be a light there. Did you hear? It's so completely contrasting to the separationist mentality. Go into it. Don't be absorbed by the culture. You go into it, be involved, be part of the fabric, but you be the light. You show difference there. And then number three, pray for the peace and the prosperity of your city. Pray for the peace and the prosperity of your city. Seek the healing and the renewal of your city. Pray for the peaceful existence and the prosperity of your city. I just find this astounding. Because he's telling this to the grouping of people who had been uprooted out of the safety and security and the comfort of Israel in Jerusalem. And then be taken to Babylon which is just the antithesis of what they'd come from. They'd been brainwashed and and completely tried to be changed. God was completely out of that culture. Everything they knew to be true was different. But yet God says, pray for Babylon. Pray for that city that you're in. Pray for the peace and the prosperity. Why? Because your blessing is intertwined with it. You're there. You're there. You're in exile, yes, but you are there. So pray. Pray for the peace. Pray for, this is why, folks, we are prayer walking in Lake Travis area. In the midst of everything that's going on, we're praying. We're praying for the peace and prosperity. It's our responsibility to speak blessing. Through the blessing of the righteous, a city is exalted. We're to do that. And so we pray for the peace and the blessing of our cultures around us. There's a guy by the name of Jonathan Sachs who wrote this amazing article called On Creative Minorities. And it's in this article that he describes how Jews are one of the best examples of how to live and how to thrive in a hostile culture. Think about that. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, Jewish people have endured persecution in very hostile, hostile cultures. But think about that. The Amorites, the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, none of these exist anymore. They don't exist anymore. But yet, the Jewish fingerprint are all over the Western world. 
They have remained influencers. These are, the Jewish people are influencers in fashion and government and the legal system and society and the arts. Hollywood is a fantastic thing to look at. Probably the most liberal place in our American culture today. But when you look, almost every white person that you know as an actor is also Jewish. It's a fascinating thing to think about. Even though these Jewish people are a vast minority, less than 2% of the population are Jewish, they've become a creative minority. They're a minority, yes, but they've become a creative minority. They're not a destructive minority. They're not a passive minority. They haven't been sucked in. They haven't been conquered by societies and cultures. Instead, they've influenced it. They've influenced the cultures in which they have lived. And so Jonathan Sachs, in his article, he describes this creative minority. And he says, is it inevitable or is it reversible? Can a civilization that has begun to decline recover and revive? The Cardinal suggested that this was the issue at stake between two historians, Oswald Spengler and Arnold Toynbee. For Spengler, civilizations are like organisms. They are born, they grow, they reach maturity, and then they age and decline and die. There are no exceptions. For Toynbee, there's a difference between material and spiritual dimensions of a civilization. Precisely because they have a spiritual dimension, they are open to the human ability to recover. That gifts to Toynbee belonged to what he called creative minorities, history's great problem solvers. Therefore, concluded Ratzinger, Christian believers should look upon themselves as just such a creative minority and help Europe to reclaim what is best in its heritage and, is therefore, and, is, and to therefore place itself at the service of all humankind. Look what he's saying. Even if you find yourself in a minority, be a creative minority. Be a part of still influencing. Yes, you're not in the majority anymore. Wake up, folks. Even though we're here in the United States, you're no longer in the majority. But be a creative minority because you can still influence. A lot of European Christians have just gave, given up on their continent. When I lived there in Germany, that's just the way it was, that, that the influence of all sorts of other religious types of things were infiltrating. It was true. Churches were dead all over. And it was like the body of Christ had just been wiped off the map. They were no longer engaging. They were no longer a part. And listen, if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. Either we'll just blend in with syncretism or we'll do the separation thing. But the ultimate result is that you get lost in it. We no longer become influencers. The Jewish people are such an incredible example of what God can do with the people who don't separate themselves or don't become, they don't get, get absorbed in the culture there, but they actually become this creative minority. A guy by the name of John Tyson, he defines a, a Christian creative minority like this. He says, a Christian creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Folks, this is what has to come. This is what where our, this is, becomes our mission. And when you look at the book of Daniel, the point of the book of Daniel is how to live as a creative minority. How to actually do this. Not just to survive, but how to thrive in it. How to adapt, how to innovate, how to redefine, how to recreate a new way of living that's true to your core. And it was this sixth century letter that Jeremiah wrote from God's voice saying, 
to the exiles in Babylon that began to be the blueprint, the paradigm for how to live in exile as a creative minority. This letter, this Jeremiah 29, became the blueprint for how to do it, how to live as an exile. I want you to look at Daniel's response to this letter. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now look at what goes on with Daniel. Because Daniel gets this letter from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord. This is what God says. You're here in exile. Let me show you how to live. And so Daniel had to face the fact that things had changed, that he and his friends, they were no longer in Jerusalem. They were no longer in the majority. They were in the minority. And this wasn't just going to last a few days. It wasn't just going to last a few weeks. It wasn't just going to last a few months. It wasn't even going to last a few years. This was going to last a long time. And notice how Daniel grieved over this. So I turned it to the Lord and pleaded, with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. See, the reality for you and for me is that our culture has changed. Our country has changed. The cultural wars are over and we lost, folks. The cultural wars are over and we lost. We were destroyed there. It's no longer cool to follow Jesus. And in a city like Austin, where, it, where we're obsessed with being cool, you have to own the fact that if you're a Jesus follower, you're not cool. <laughs> if you're a Jesus follower, you're no longer cool. You're, you're not normal. You're weird. You're different. But here's the thing. You need to own it. <laughs> Just own it. You don't have to explain it away. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to get sheepish and hide it. Just own it. Yes, you're not cool. Yes, you're weird. Yes, you are different. Just, just own it. And the reality is you probably need to grieve a little bit. You probably need to grieve a little bit. Because, whew, this country, it's not the same. And you, you need to come to that reality. Because if you don't see it for what it is, you're going to still start walking around as if it is the country of your grandparents. That... That being a Christian, you can just kind of go with the flow because everything around you is kind of going in that same direction. Folks, the ground beneath our feet has shifted. And you may need to grieve over that. But at the same time, just like Daniel, you have to realize this isn't going to just change overnight. In Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua is talking to the Israelites about this new land that they're going to be living in. And he tells them, you got to make a choice. you got to make a choice. Joshua 24, verse 14, he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your forefathers served before the, beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, 
we will serve the Lord. Amen. You have to make a choice. If it's true that our culture has changed, you have to choose now. You can't just go through life. You can't just passively go through because you're no longer in the majority. The people, the people around you aren't going in the same direction. And so you have to intentionally, proactively choose. Choose you this day who you're going to serve. As for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. That's a choice. That's a choice you have to make. But I'm telling you something. The way of Jesus is a narrow road. It's, it's, it's a narrow road, which means you might not get asked on too many dates. You might not get asked to that party. You might lose that sale. But I'm telling you something. It's in exile where the people of God tend to do better at following Jesus. It's in exile where the people of God come together as one. It's in exile where the miraculous actually can occur. This has now become the new normal. It's exile hard, absolutely. Listen to this quote from Jonathan Sachs. He says, so you can be a minority living in a country whose religion, culture, and legal system are not your own, and yet sustain your identity. Live your faith and contribute to the common good, exactly as Jeremiah said. It isn't easy. It demands a complex finessing of identities. It involves a willingness to live in a state of cognitive dissonance. It isn't for the faint-hearted, but it is creative. Yeah. See, folks, this is where we are, like it or not. We no longer live in a, in a Christian culture, and no matter who wins this presidential election in November, it's not going to change that. The ground has already shifted under our feet. And so just like Daniel, we find ourselves living in a foreign and even hostile, growing hostile culture. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be diving into the book of Daniel because it's such a great blueprint. It shows us that paradigm to how to navigate life when you're living in exile. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes here. Father, there is so much happening. And Lord, my heart is just full of all these things that are shifting around us. My concern for our kids growing up in this culture, the concern just for us as adults. So much has shifted and so much has changed, but, but yet we still live in the same homes. We still live on the same soil and we're still shopping at the same stores. And it's just so hard for so many of us to see the shift. God, it's like being that frog in that boiling pot and it was cold and then it's just turning up slowly, slowly, slowly. We don't even realize that we're boiling to death because it's been gradual. Father, I pray for every one of us that just as you did with Jeremiah and you spoke through Jeremiah to those exiles in Babylon, that, Father, we would be able to hear your voice with greater and greater clarity of what this is all about. It's not about giving up hope. It's not about 
giving up on our country, but it's being able to see the new normal in which we live that would force us to live our life differently, that we can't just go, continue to passively go on through life. Lord, I pray that you would arrest our attention. Lord, I pray you'd help us see things for what they are. And Lord, I pray for every one of us that there would rise inside of us this courage to choose. Just as you spoke through Joshua that we have to choose and the reality is that some people are going to choose just to follow culture, choose just to be passive and just to go along with the flow. But Lord, I pray for every one of us here, Lord, that we would be ones who would stand and be counted and said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yes. Lord, I pray that that would just stir inside of our hearts, God, that we wouldn't be caught up and all the things that are going around us because there is a greater reality in this life that we live in goes by so fast. It's just a blink in the eye and it's over. And so Father, I pray you give us an eternal perspective. Give us a, a perspective that's greater than this day, greater tomorrow when we go to school and we go to work and when we're doing all of our stuff, that you give us a perspective that's greater. So Lord, that we could live effectively, not as bitter, not as angry, not as legalistic people, but people who are actually influencing the culture around us in spite of the changes, in spite of the things that are happening around us. Lord, I pray that you'd burn that inside of us. God, that we would wake up. God, that our eyes would see what's happening around us. And Lord, that we would be those people who say yes to you, that we would choose you this day. You know, the Bible describes for us that communion is one of those times where we have a choice. And as I was thinking about this here this morning, that the reality may be for you this morning that you just came to church. You just have been doing this thing. But you may have not made a choice a choice is only something you can do. Coming to church is not a choice. But a choice comes right here, where you said, okay, if this is what it's gonna to mean to be a follower of Jesus, if it's no longer cool to be a follower of Jesus, if the reality might be that people will make fun of me, and even get to the point where they might persecute you and they might even kill you, if that's what it's going to mean, then Jesus, I'm still gonna choose you. Communion is a fantastic action point for this because this is always a question. Jesus said, I give you my life. I've laid down my life for you. Now, will you give me your life? When we take communion, it's the reply to that question. Jesus, thank you for giving me your life. And yes, I choose you, and I give you my life. We're gonna do this together, but I, this is not, I'm not forcing anybody to do this. I'm gonna just kind of explain just the kind of flow that happens. If you feel uncomfortable with any of this, if you're not ready to make a decision to choose Jesus, then by no means just go, don't go with the flow, all right? 
But there's two stations in front of each of the sections. There's a station here and right here. And what we're going to do is the front row is going to exit to the right and circle around back on the left. You'll take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice and just take that moment of your of making that choice and they'll go on back by sections. If you feel uncomfortable being a part of doing any of that, um, if you want to just stay in your seat or if there's not enough room in the rows, just go through the, the line and uh, you don't have to take it when you come up here. But this this is for you. This is You don't have to be a member of this church to take communion. We celebrate open communion, which means this, that this table is set by Jesus, not by us. You don't have to be a member here to take communion. This is between you and Jesus here. And so let's do this here together.